0: If you hear anyone saying, we're running this to win, you should conclude they're badly misinformed, and if this is actually the strategy that's being used, it's the wrong strategy, and you don't want someone like that as our candidate. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty
1: podcast. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty,
0: Mark Clair.
1: Welcome back, my little Liberty Lumpkins, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 209. Why is that important? Because it means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 209. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com/health. My guest today is a longtime libertarian party activist, He has served as the executive director of the Massachusetts Libertarian Association. He has been a libertarian candidate both for the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress, and he currently serves as chair of the Libertarian Association of Massachusetts. He has written four books on libertarian strategy and politics, the most recent of which is entitled Surely We Can Do Better, examining in detail the spending decisions of the campaigns of Bob Barr in 2008 and Gary Johnson in 2012. I am pleased to welcome to the show Mr. George. Phillies George before we get going I've got to know are you ready to roar all right I love it honestly that might be one of the best roars I've gotten so far so it's a great start George
0: <laughs> meow
1: We're not kiddies yet, but we'll see. We'll see how this interview goes. But uh, George, like I mentioned, you've been involved uh, in the libertarian movement for a a really long time now. And and before we get into, you know, your book that you recently wrote about the Gary Johnson and Bob Barr campaigns, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So can you just kind of tell us how you first became interested in libertarian ideas and maybe just go through some of your past involvement with libertarian politics and the
0: libertarian party? I am one of the few people who noticed this little marginal note in the New York Times back in 72, that one elector had cast a vote for John Hospers, whoever he was. Then, at some point, I started reading National Review, gave up on them, saw ballot access news someplace saw an ad for the libertarian party and decided it was definitely an improvement over the alternatives. So I've been interested in a long time. When I moved to Massachusetts in 1985, at some point in the later 80s, I registered to vote and I registered libertarian, meaning you took the form and wrote the word libertarian on it. This must have been 087 or so. And since then... Well, we advanced to 1994. I was in touch with the Libertarian Association of Massachusetts, and – There were a group in Western Mass that wanted to get things together, and we formed the Pioneer Valley Libertarian Association, which is still in operation and is now the oldest continuously existing libertarian group in Massachusetts. In 94-96, I suggested, gee, we should try recruiting people for state legislature. That's harder than it sounds. But in 96, I became executive director, and I was on the state committee. Since then, I, for a while, formed Liberty for Massachusetts, which was a political action group in Massachusetts. I've run repeatedly for national chair, the delegates made other decisions. I ran for president once and was on the ballot in New Hampshire. That was the decision of the New Hampshire Libertarian Party. They asked people to show up. I showed up. I asked for the nomination. They gave it to me. This was in 2008. Barr was also on the ballot there. Since then, I have, in fact, going back to 2000, I published a magazine. And first it was Let Freedom Ring, and now it's a liberty for America. And it. F- focuses on what libertarian politics is doing, not issues, but how money is spent, who is running for office, that sort of thing. So that's sort of where I'm from.
1: So you've certainly been around the uh, the libertarian block, I guess you might say. And uh, I want to go back what you mentioned there a second ago, the 2008 campaign. So obviously Bob Barr was uh, elected by the delegates as the nominee in 2008. But in uh, New Hampshire, they actually decided to put you on the ballot as well. Can you kind of describe how that all played out and why that decision was made? That were they just so unhappy with the decision of the national delegates that they the state party sort of rebelled and said, well, we're going to put this guy up too?
0: The time sequence is actually a bit different. They had to do petitioning, and they needed the actual candidate name on the ballot. So in 2007, they invited candidates to show up and ask for the nomination. I showed, I think one or two other people did, but I don't remember who. And I made the case, and they said, okay, this is the good person to put on the ballot. They did all of the petitioning, to get me and various congressional and other candidates on the ballot. I helped them with delivering the nominating papers and that sort of thing. I also did work helping them to generate big stock of lawn signs, not just for myself, but for the two congressional candidates. There would have been a candidate for governor and some other people. And we actually did campaigning. And then the national party decided they were going to put Barr on the ballot. So they did the petitioning and put Barr on the ballot.
1: That's really interesting. I didn't even know you. So you essentially had two libertarian candidates on
0: the 2008 ballot in New Hampshire. Is that pretty much the end result of that? That was the end result of it. The secretary of the state there said that if I had wanted to say so, he would have ruled that the second candidate that was Barr could not use the word libertarian, but that would have been tacky. Yeah, if you're trying to pile up votes, that might have been more impressive, but I didn't do that.
1: All right. Well, we're going to get into the contents of your book. Uh, surely we can do better is the title. And obviously from the title, you think that we haven't done that great as a libertarian party in the last, at least, uh, you know, in recent history. So can you first just tell us why you took the time to create this book? What actually inspired you to, you know, put this out there and, and kind of disclose some of the things that you found about the Gary Johnson and the uh, Bob Barr campaign spending?
0: It actually goes back to 96 and 2000. I wrote another book, Funding Liberty, on the two Harry Brown campaigns and how they spent their money. If that was a bit disappointing, Brown did a better job than Barr or Johnson did. I wrote the the Johnson book and added the Barr material because I had it because it appeared to me that Johnson had run a campaign. We got to see how he runs campaigns. He runs campaigns very poorly, and if we recycle it, we can expect the same thing will happen. So we don't want to do that. So I wrote the campaign so delegates would be alerted to what they might be voting for.
1: And you say in your book that national delegates of the Libertarian Party were misled as to the state of the finances of the Gary Johnson campaign back in 2012. So can you just delve into that a little bit? What, what were they told about the finances of the campaign and how does that differ from the reality that later came out? OK,
0: campaign finances, because you're running for president, you're legally required to file campaign finance reports with the Federal Election Commission. Johnson did this. And anyone, you just go on the internet, fec.gov, anyone can do it. And any delegate who did this would have looked up and found that at the end of March, which was the last report you could see, Johnson said he was about 152000 in debt. However... You can file amended reports at later dates if you miss something, something doesn't load up to the computer correctly. I had to do that once for one of my reports. And in early 2013 and again in 2015, Johnson filed those amended reports. And suddenly he wasn't in debt by 152,000. He was in debt by almost seven times as much. 1,780,000. And that doesn't count something the FEC audit revealed, he also had a deal with his campaign manager. If he got the nomination, he would owe a $300,000 win bonus to the campaign manager. Now, 300 Gs to win the presidential nomination of the Republicans, eh, that's fine. But 300 Gs is like 20 or 30 percent of what you expect to raise. So the answer is the delegates were given a completely wrong impression of how far Johnson was in debt. And like you
1: said, that's the truth, because I'm not doing this interview with you to smear Gary Johnson or smear Bob Barr or anything like that. But, you know, these are facts that are out there and you've done research on them. So I do think that as you do, that it's important to get facts out there before people make a decision about who their nominee is. So I'm also curious how this Republican campaign ties in, because obviously, Gary Johnson in 2012 first ran for president as a Republican, was quickly shut out of that process and turned to the Libertarian Party as an alternative. So how how does the spending that went on during the Republican portion of that campaign, how does that tie into all of these numbers, all the debt and that sort of thing?
0: OK, we go back to 2011. Johnson started running for president early in 2011 and sort of gave up the ghost and switched parties right at the end of 2011 and in the three quarters of 2011 when he was running he raised a trifle under six hundred thousand in cash and as we now know he also went 858 thousand into debt that's a lot of money well where did the money go and
1: is that a separate debt that's just to be clear
0: that's a separate debt
1: from the campaign debt you just discussed regarding the libertarian no
0: debate. no th- those two sum up that, okay was 858 G's at the end of december two thousand eleven, and when we advanced to the end of March, which was the latest the delegates could find out about three months later it was two hundred twenty thousand larger it was one point oh seven eight million so that Republican debt
1: was rolled into the libertarian nomination debt basically ah uh, yes, that's how it legally
0: works If you switch parties it's the same campaign committee interesting, okay, however, of that g. $1.4 million he raised and went into debt while well, he was a Republican. Well, you know, as a Republican. He runs up huge debts just like George W. Bush did. He actually spent 240000 on anything other than staff salaries. And that included signs, outreach, and buried in there was media that is broadcast media which was under a thousand dollars now I ran for Congress in 1998 my media budget was bigger than his media budget and I didn't have any five hundred seventy eight thousand in campaign donations that's one of the reasons why his campaign sort of crashed namely he was spending the money but it wasn't doing anything that you would think would be very effective The other peculiar thing, remember that win bonus I mentioned? The contract on that was signed in October 2011. The contract specified that he'd owe the bonus if he got the presidential or vice presidential nomination. Now, okay, that's fine, but the contract doesn't say the Republican presidential nomination. It says of any party. And so he appears already to have been looking ahead to jumping parties over to us. And that's what he did. Interesting. So
1: there's actually some amount of at least anecdotal evidence that he had some ideas that either the Republican Party wouldn't work out or perhaps that the Republican Party might give him that initial national platform and then he could then transfer over to the Libertarian Party where he might have a better chance and obviously did have a better chance of getting the nomination because he did get it.
0: Yes. Now, the interesting part of this, I've said it, it turns, if you do the numbers, you discover he spent something like six dollars out of seven of his Republican campaign money on his staff is how he was paying his staff salary. So he had a senior political advisor. We know that's one person. And for 50 hours in October, he paid that person $16,250, which is 325 bucks an hour as an hourly rate and he had creative advertising where he was paying 225 an hour press relations 110 an hour management at 95 or 125 an hour and then there was something called outside subcontracts which I have recently learned were outside political consultants where he forked over another 10 G's now There are some people who will say, well, yeah, it was 60 hours, but it wasn't 60 hours for one person. It was a team. So it really wasn't one person getting 225 an hour. You didn't say that I believed that or not, but it was some lower rate and more people. Nonetheless, there was apparently this huge campaign staff. I've seen Johnson claim that at one point it was 29 people, and that was eating up all the money. You can't run a campaign that way. That's one of the reasons the Republicans stomped him. No campaign.
1: Something else that ties into this, which uh, is kind of confusing, but I, I know you'll be able to explain it to everybody. So Gary Johnson actually took presidential matching funds in 2012. And at the end of the day, that move actually ended up costing his campaign money. So can you kind of detail
0: how that played out? Okay, Presidential campaign matching funds can cover your expenses for the primary election. In order to get them, you have to raise $100,000 spread evenly over 20 states. And then for all of the eligible money you raise, meaning no more than $250, Dollars per donor is eligible, the federal government will give you a welfare check that matches the money you raised. Well, you had to work for it. It isn't quite welfare. So Johnson, through this path, raised a bit over 600000 there's then, if you take this, they have to do an audit. That's required. So he went through the audit, which doesn't say anything was wrong when they did the audit. just says you have to be audited so you took the money. And they concluded he had not been paid more than he was owed by the federal government. But they also concluded that, gee, where did he spend the money? Because there's a rule you can only spend the matching funds on things that are, you're allowed to spend it on and they concluded that he'd spent about half the money not on allowed purposes. There was then a back and forth between his campaign and their legal support in D.C. and other groups as to whether he owed the money or not. One of the complications which I'd heard about at the time and seen was that if you read his fundraisers in the summer of 2012 when he was the presidential candidate the fundraisers said the money could be used for his primary election expenses and therefore said they well this really gets complicated but the net result was they said you spent 330,000 not on allowed purposes you have to pay it back meaning he was left with a shade under 300 g's that he was allowed to keep in order to hang on to the 300,000 and defend his claim on the 600,000 he spent over 300,000 and this included attorneys it included large amounts of money for lining up and records and all sorts of things and the net result was that the money he spent to keep the 300,000 was larger than the amount he was allowed to keep of course, there's a complication here. We're currently at the stage where the FEC has legally ruled, you owe us, I believe it's 334000 it's something like that, dollars, pay up. The pay up can either be paid by his campaign committee, which has no cash, or the candidate personally, the candidate does have the cash, but is subject to appeals, and we won't know where the appeals are going until early May because he's allowed to appeal either to the FEC or to the court system.
1: So this should be
0: known, you know, by the time that the Libertarian Convention rolls around then. Is that It should be known and it's possible to find it on the FEC website. You do a search for Gary Johnson and look for the word audit in this big list of things that will come out when you do a search on the FEC website. It's a very nice website, very helpful, by the way. After all, it's written to be easy to be used by politicians and newspaper reporters. (laughs) So it's got to be pretty simple, huh? (laughs) It has to be clear. Otherwise, everyone gets angry at the FEC, and they don't want that. Having said that, there's one little bit. You see, when I ran in 2008, I considered looking at Gee, might. what do I think of taking campaign matching funds? Well, the first answer is that most of the party has always agreed that taking matching funds, political welfare, was immoral. It was accepting stolen money, tax dollars, and no candidate could possibly do it. And, gee, Harry Brown talked about it, and there was then a great ruckus at the national convention, and he said he wouldn't. Johnson just went ahead and took the money and may have lost money as a result on the deal. But when I looked at it, there was one key feature. If your campaign owes money back and they don't have the money, you are personally liable for the differences, There have been other campaigns that were asked for chunks of change, but on a percentage basis they were much smaller. Oh, I think it was the bidden campaign that took thirteen million and was asked for two million back. But that's one dollar and six. This is more than half. So that's where it went.
1: So at the end of the day, the Gary Johnson campaign of 2012 finished in about $1.5 million in debt. So uh, what actually happened to that debt? I mean, has it been paid back? Are there still creditors owed money? I mean, and how does that relate to the 2016 campaign? Or are they completely separate legal entities when it comes to the debt?
0: Okay, point one, Gary Johnson 2012 and Gary Johnson 2016. And Gary Johnson, the tall guy, are three distinct legal <laughs> entities. Debts of the 2012 campaign are not owed by the 2016 campaign if you give the 2016 campaign money it will not go to those debts however having said that's the relationship between them the other answer on what happens to the debt is well gary johnson 2012 is a corporation it can go bankrupt so to speak but the process is not title chapter this or chapter that because there's this rule Uh, Political campaigns cannot accept corporate campaign donations. Uh, This came up when Bobby Kennedy was shot. His campaign was deeply in debt. And the question was, well, I, I think it was American Airlines. We're owed 300 Gs. Can we just cancel it? And the answer is no. There is a legal process you have to go through. And the legal process is you list all the people to whom you owe money. You... Propose what you're going to do with each of the debts. And the Federal Election Commission has to agree to this. When last I looked a couple of days ago, the FEC, they would put in a first filing. The FEC said, no, there's some problems here. You have to fix this. They submitted a second filing. The FEC has not indicated if they'll accept it or not. Now, what is happening is there are nine debtors. Five of them have said they will simply swallow the debt. This includes Bellatrix PC, which is the campaign committee of the current new vice presidential candidate, Alicia Dern, who I'm told is a very nice person. There are two debtors, namely the big campaign organization, which is Ensign, or Political Advisors. It's same operation doing business under two names. All of the invoices came from Enson, And then there is one of the legal corporations. And what they have each been told is that the campaign will give them a certain number of transferable copies of all of their data, all of their contacts, all of their emails, it's all of their donors, and the People who receive this the magic word there is transferable can either use it themselves or sell it to someone else. Finally, there are two debtors who are owed money who did not agree to simply swallow the debt. And so if you look at the end, they're listed as they will be paid nothing, but they have not agreed to any of the things the FEC asks before the FEC will sign off on canceling the debt. Now, there are a lot of political campaigns that overspend and end up in the hole. Readers can look up Hillary Clinton 2008 and the things she had to do to clean up that mess. But in the end, Johnson is basically walking away from a big chunk of the debt and giving two of his debtors, including the primary one, the campaign advisor, copies of this mailing list. By the way, that mailing list is anyone who gave money to Johnson. So if you got a, a mailer in the summer of 2012 and the you sent Johnson a donation, Johnson now owns your contact information. That's the way the world works. And it may be resold. So they can
1: actually sell that information, not just use it for their own purposes at that point.
0: Oh, yes. In fact, to come back to the bar campaign and give Credit where credit is due. I do want to touch on the Barr campaign as well. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, Barr ended up 200 Gs in debt. And he had his mailing list and he sold it repeatedly to different places. You can track where it went. And he was able to pay the debt down to about 130 or $140,000. At some point, this process runs out of steam, but he was able to pay off a significant chunk of his debt.
1: All right, George, where it's clear that you have done your research in regards to the money involved in the Gary Johnson and the Bob Barr campaign, I want to get a few more of your thoughts on Libertarian Party politics in a minute. But first, I need to take some time out to tell our listeners how they can save some money on their health care by checking out our friends at Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare my deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof. And I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my healthcare? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. (laughs) I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500, I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype so you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary, and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard, corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health, or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative, Jeff Cantor, at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. All right. So, George, I mean, obviously, um, you've gone through all this time to do all this research, not just on the Barr campaign and the Johnson campaign, but you've been doing this for quite some time. So obviously you see that monitoring this spending and the, and the money that comes in is very important because obviously, you know, Libertarian Party isn't the big one. It's, it's made up of a relatively small group of people compared to the Republican and Democrat parties. And a lot of these people have very limited resources. So it makes sense to sort of point out where the money has gone in the past and think about where it might go in the future. And I know that is why you went out and did this book. But uh, what I'd like to know from you is, what do you think should be the purpose of a, a libertarian presidential campaign? Obviously, in the case of Gary Johnson, at the end of the day, I think only like one in six or one in $7 dollars actually went to outreach. The rest seemed to go to staff and that sort of thing. So, I mean, what should be the primary focus of a libertarian presidential campaign and a, a libertarian presidential candidate?
0: Let me take a comparison. My state's new attorney general, Maura Healy, she's a good Democrat she ran a campaign and the mission of her campaign staff was we'll raise a hundred dollars and 75 or 80 of them go to outreach and 20 or 25 of them go to staff and everything else and if we run short of money the staff has to take pay cuts which they did but most of the money went exactly where she said okay so what is supposed to be going on uh first of all It is completely irrational to suppose that a libertarian presidential candidate can win this year. We do not have the voter base where a libertarian presidential candidate in a three-way race can get the 40 percent, roughly speaking, of the vote you'd need in order to win, maybe a bit higher than that. Now, there are people who are saying, well, if we're really lucky, we could throw the race into the House of Representatives where each state has one vote meaning there's a solid Republican majority, and if we just make the difference between Clinton and Trump and neither of them have the needed electoral votes, gee, we might have a chance to get elected president. Well, first of all, it appears likely that Clinton will win overwhelmingly. That's not a guarantee. This has been a very strange year. Second, if we are at the point, as has been proposed, where Johnson has four electoral votes and therefore is one of the three candidates. The good Republican of electors of Texas will get together. Five of them will dutifully vote for Ted Cruz and the choices before the Senate, because after all, electors are free to vote for whoever they want. That's how Hospers has got his electoral vote. And the choices in the House of Representatives will then be Trump, Clinton, and Cruz. And... Johnson will just be shut out, so talking about winning is foolish. Uh, there are people who talk about vote records. well, Johnson did set a vote record, but if you look at what happened to the National Party in the next two years then at indeed the next three years, the National Party membership fell dramatically, so it didn't do anything much. What should the presidential candidate do? The objective is to put out the libertarian message. Put out the message, we're the party you want to join, and grab all of these people. You shake the lowest limbs where the fruit is loose, and the, so to speak, the people who are most available to switch over will switch over and you put them all into state and local parties. By the way, that's the opposite of what Johnson did in 2012. If you were a Johnson 2012 coordinator, I'm assured by one of them, you could not find out who your own state volunteers were. You could only send emails through the uh, national headquarters, which took its own sweet time about it. Uh, What a good campaign does the way bad merrick did i was his national volunteer coordinator volunteers come in and you get them out to your state coordinators and the state parties as fast as possible donations come in you put them in touch with the national party as fast as possible the main thing that the campaign can do is advertise the existence. As a general statement, if you hear anyone saying, we're running this to win, you should conclude they're badly misinformed, and if this is actually the strategy that's being used, it's the wrong strategy, and you don't want someone like that as our candidate.
1: What about what I often hear from people? I hear people saying that if we get X percentage of votes, whether that's 5% in an election, or some people say 15% in polls, we'll get them into the debates, or Five percent in election will guarantee, uh, you know, ballot access and matching funds, and it's kind of hard to sort out the truth among all that. So, I mean, are there actual benefits to achieving these milestones? This five percent that I often hear, or the fifteen percent in the polls?
0: Most of the things you just quoted aren't true. Okay, there are a few states. I, Texas, I think, comes to mind where if a statewide candidate gets enough of the votes, it matters in a positive way for the state party and that's good. But there are only a few of those states. Uh, For example, to take the other side, Indiana libertarians have been a major party for a long time, and there's only one number that counts, and it's the vote in the secretary of state election in the off year. You need, I think the magic number is 2%, and we can be grateful to, if I recall correctly, it was Rebecca Sink-Burris who did it first. Good work for her, and they've done it ever since. Okay, If you are at 15% in the polls, the national debate people, the highly partisan commission, says you can get into the debates. Now, there are a couple of little details on this. First, they can't conscript candidates. It will be up to the Donald and Hillary to decide whether they want to debate a libertarian or not they may well decide this is a bad deal, in which case they will simply advise the commission. They'll be having their own debate someplace else. They will, if necessary, the two campaigns will get together. They can do this. Each rent half of a hall, rent time on television. Oh, where do you rent time on television? Home shopping network. After all, you're (laughs) selling the presidency, and the debate won't do anything. Besides practical experience in 98 i ran for congress i was in all of the debates the press when they talked about it said libertarian surprise winner one of my debates went out on national television coast to coast twice did this help my vote totals No, it was a very heavily contested campaign. This was one of these key seats that was going to determine Congress. The other side spent millions... Between them, if you went by a polling place, you didn't see two nice people holding up. Vote Jim McGovern. You saw 30 all day on Election Day. Huge effort to turn out the Democratic and Republican vote. So I got my about the same as what the statewide candidates did, 1.5%. You can win debates, but most people who listen to debates have their minds made up. Okay. Okay. If we get 5 or 15 percent, we get national ballot access on the ballot in every state. That's complete nonsense. It's just not true. In Massachusetts, there are two paths. I'm giving my state. It's just one example. Rule. There are 50 states. They have 50 sets of election laws. They're all different. If you want to talk about a state, you need to look up what it is. In my state... If we in the off year election get 3% of the vote for a statewide candidate, or if we manage to register 1% of the voters as libertarians, we become a major party. This is a catastrophe. It means that only libertarians and independent voters can sign the nominating papers, and we have the same signature requirement that everyone else does. As long as we're a minor party, anyone can sign our nominating papers. Wow, I didn't that, realize that.
1: So that could, becoming a major party could actually hinder some of the process later on in terms of getting you know, certain ballot access and, and petitioning and that sort of thing? Uh, that's
0: absolutely true in Massachusetts. In, in your state particular, right. And the same yes. could be true
1: in other states as well.
0: Other states have other issues. In Massachusetts, if you are a major party, you must have a primary. And this means that one of your opposing candidates, like the Democrat, can run a sticker, what the rest of the world calls a write-in campaign, in your primary to knock you off the ballot. It's been done. So – That isn't true. Now, there is something that is true. If you get 5% of the vote, in the next election, you can get presidential campaign matching funds. However, historically, most libertarians have said that taking matching funds is welfare, it's immoral, it's contrary to the statement of principles, it's taking stolen money, and no honest candidate would do it. When Johnson did it, he said all of his matching funds would be used to pay off his Republican campaign debt, uh, which is sort of numerically true, and none of his summer libertarian donations would be used to pay off his Republican campaign debt, and that is not consistent with his campaign filings. In any event, if I'm running in 2020 and we get 5% this year, I could take campaign matching funds, but there's this little detail If we take too much and we have to do payback, the campaign is liable, and if the campaign can't pay it back, the candidate is liable personally. Well, that's fine if you're Mitt Romney or Donald Trump or George Soros, if he's eligible – Warren Buffett, he's eligible, but if you're me, I don't care to be hit with a half-million-dollar bill. I am entirely wealthy enough to pay a half-million dollars, but I for sure would not like to do so. So most of these, if we do well, magic things will happen are not true. And that does seem to be the primary,
1: or at least one of the primary arguments that I've heard for the Gary Johnson campaign out there. So George, I do appreciate you really coming on the show and breaking all this down for us. I know you have a lot of experience in the party and in politics in general, so I certainly respect your take on things. And I was glad to have you on here to to break all this down for us. And before I let you go, why don't you just uh, do a quick run through of where people can find this book as well as your other works. I know you're you're basically trying to give this book away (laughs) as much as you can. So if you could just break all that down and feel free to promote anything else you've got going on
0: okay i have four books on politics you can go on amazon.com and search for books by george phillies or go on kindle and you can find surely we can do better that's my current book Funding Liberty, that's my book on the 2016 campaign, and you can also find Libertarian Renaissance, which basically says what libertarians should be doing on a national scale. You can find it at Amazon.com, and just as well, maybe even better, you can go to Smashwords, one word, Smashwords.com, and you can download the books in as many formats as you want.
1: All right, George Phillies, once again, thank you for coming on the show, and good luck with everything else that you've got going on. I hope you stay an important voice in the Libertarian Party and Libertarian politics going forward.
0: Thank you very much for your kind words, and have a great day. Thanks, George. Bye. All
1: right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Mr. George Phillies, who has been around the Libertarian Party For a very long time, and I certainly find his observations to be valuable. Now, I know a criticism that I'll get from this interview is that George Phillies just has it out for Gary Johnson. He's been putting this book out there because he wants to take down the Johnson campaign. And I'm not going to pretend I think George Phillies is a Gary Johnson guy, But by all accounts, he is doing some objective work here by looking at these finances, by trying to see where this money went, and by trying to account for it. And with other libertarian candidates that are running, it's just not possible to do this kind of work because they have not run a campaign already. However, we do have someone running in Gary Johnson that has already run a libertarian campaign. And we have seen the results of that. He did get a very high vote total for a libertarian, but we have to think about the larger term impacts. Did it grow the Libertarian Party? Did more people get turned on to the ideas of liberty? I don't know how to really objectively look at that, but we can objectively look at how much money was put towards those outreach efforts as opposed to how much was spent on other things, whether they are debt, whether they are campaign staff, or what have you. And now Gary Johnson, as I mentioned, is one guy I've been trying desperately to get on this program. Uh, I've interviewed most of the top libertarian candidates. I'll link to those discussions in the show notes for the show, lionsofliberty.com slash 209. I'm trying to present as broad a picture as I can of all these candidates, both on what they believe, what they represent, and what they've done. Now, in the case of Gary Johnson, like I said, he's the only one we have a record of what he's already done as a libertarian candidate. So I frankly think it's a very valid thing to take a look at. Now, I'd be happy to have Governor Johnson give his side of this and explain, you know, why he is still a great candidate, why he is the guy that the Libertarian Party should put forward once again. So if you want to hear Gary Johnson interviewed by Mark Clare, well, there's one thing you should do, and that's tell him, whether it's tweeting to him, sending emails to his campaign, because I really want Gary Johnson to get the opportunity to present himself directly to libertarians. Now, we've seen him on CNN. He's been on mainstream media, and and people tout this as a reason that he'd be a great candidate, because he can garner this media attention. But first, we also have to talk to the libertarians, and you got to present your case to libertarians. Now, of course, he's been doing this all over the country. He's been going to every single libertarian state convention, so I'm not certainly trying to argue that because Gary Johnson has not come on Lions of Liberty that he is somehow not attempting to sell himself to libertarians. Of course. As he's doing that every day. But uh, I certainly would love to provide, I guess, the, uh, the Lions of Liberty perspective. So, hey, if you have a connection to Gary Johnson, if you want to reach out to him, by all means, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to engage in this conversation with us as well. You can do that by coming over to our private Facebook group. That's the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find that by typing Lions of Liberty Forum. Right there in your little search bar on Facebook. Of course, we will also link to that group in the show notes for today's show, which can again be found at lionsofliberty.com/slash. 209. If you're a fan of the conversations you hear on this program, I highly, highly encourage you to hit that subscribe button on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, and please leave us a five-star rating and a great review because that is one very, very, very easy method you can utilize to help grow the show, to get it in front of more people, to get the ideas of Liberty and more of those earbuds out there because without my passionate fan base spreading this show around, it ain't gonna grow. You guys are all I got. I spend all my time making the show. I need you guys to help spread it around there and keep this conversation going now next week guys i've got another libertarian candidate now i've interviewed many of the presidential candidates but this coming monday i will be interviewing a candidate for the vice presidential position the vice presidential nomination of the libertarian party I'll be speaking with Miss Alicia Dern, a very interesting lady, so don't forget to tune in to that on Monday. And before that, this coming Friday, we've got another edition of John Odermatt's Felony Friday, a weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. There is just no shortage of great content here at Lions of Liberty. The podcast is published every single Monday and Wednesday, and of course, Felony Friday on Fridays. You just can't get enough, I know. Until next time, guys. Live long and live free.